Let's, uh, I hope this is going to work. Let's thank God together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you the entrance of your word brings light and your light changes the way that we live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you said that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. We pray for light and freedom, something liberating to come into our hearts today that gives us boldness and confidence to live for you, that stirs our hearts to free, loving obedience to Christ Jesus. Change us today, change our thinking, change our living. As we consider your word, we pray. Amen. Okay. Okay, let's see if this runs. So we come today to do this. It's going off. We come today to the section of Thessalonians that's been particularly used during the past two centuries to teach a secret rapture. How many of you are familiar with that one? Uh, through an invisible return of the Lord Jesus. That idea was unknown for the first 18 centuries of the Church of Christ. It was, wasn't even thought of until the 1830s, 1850s and made popular for the writings of Jane Darby and then through the Schofield Annotated Bible. You heard me a few Sundays ago tell you that that secret rapture followed by a seven-year tribulation, then a thousand-year reign of Jesus, and finally the day of judgment, and then the eternal kingdom of God was what I was taught as a young believer, especially when I went to Bible college. <clears throat> but I, as I just read through the Bible, I, I just was disturbed. That that's not what I saw. It's not the conclusion I was coming to. I couldn't get away from this. That Jesus says three times over in John's Gospel to us who believe, I will raise him up on the last day. And no matter how much I was taught something else, the last day didn't figure with what I was being told. Because the last day is the what? The, the last. There aren't any more. All right? The next day is the new day, it's the eternal kingdom of God. New heaven, new earth, eternal kingdom. So last day is the last day of this age, this time, this world. And Jesus says that the last day is the day of resurrection for both the righteous and the wicked, for the judgment of the world and inheritance of his people. Now I know that I'm asking you to let go of what you think you know and understand, what you've always heard, just the way I always heard it and to take hold of a rather different view of the last things, what's called eschatology. That's an invented Greek word, but meaning the last things. But actually, what I came to believe is much simpler and clearer than the complicated system that most of us have been told. Uh, it's also what the Church of Christ believed for 18 centuries before someone came along with their bright idea. Now, I believe with all my heart in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I'm, I can say with the creeds, we believe in his return. We believe in eternal life. We be I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if you have any questions or concerns about what I'm telling you, just, just talk to me about that. Ask me some questions. I'll give you some even more notes to help you through. I know it's difficult because I wrestled with this for a long time and I still wrestle with some things as you'll see next week when we go into 2 Thessalonians 2. Now I'm going to read to you from 1 Thessalonians 4 about the middle right through into chapter 5. It's a long section. I'm ignoring the chapter divisions 
because the, the chapters and verse markings were added later. They're not part of the original text. And sometimes they come in the most ridiculous places, like in the middle of a sentence, let alone a paragraph. Okay? And so this needs to be read through. This is called about context. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians verse 14. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Why was Paul writing this? Because the Thessalonians had been misled and were troubled. They'd been given to understand, through some kind of false teaching, that to have a place in the resurrection to life, to have eternal life, when Jesus came to be saved, you had to stay alive until he returned. If you died, you missed out. Now that's pretty rough, isn't it? <laughs> stay awake, stay alive, otherwise you'll miss it. Well, isn't that so far different from you better be ready or you might miss the rapture? You know, that, that's not so different, is it, really, in a way? So Paul, Paul said to them, I, we don't want you to be uninformed. Paul wasn't somebody who was trying to educate some Christian elite. He wanted everybody to understand. Because when you understand, you can live appropriately. The subject here is those who are asleep, Christians who, are, who have died. But the Bible in the New Testament often uses the word sleep instead of death. Because Jesus says, he who believes in me will not see death. We don't really die in the way that unbelievers die. By the way, did you know that cemetery means the same as dormitory? It's Latin for a place you go to sleep. It's where you go to sleep. The cemetery is where you sleep. Of course, Christians who die, their souls are with the Lord, and to, but to us they sleep, their bodies rest in the grave, awaiting resurrection. We Christians have hope in Christ to save us from sin and from death. Part of that is our hope in him of raising us to eternal life on the last day. So let's go on. Since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. By the way, there's no since there in the original. It's just we believe. It's like, a, like a, one of the statements of the creek. We believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And in the same way, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. Our brothers, our sisters, our family and friends who've died in the Lord with faith in him are not lost. They're safe. And he will bring them with him at his coming. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah. They're not forgotten. No. They're safe. They're with him. And he will bring them with him when he returns. For we say this to you by revelation of the Lord. Now I'll tell you in a bit. Not everything Paul says here is a revelation, but this one bit is. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming, the Greek word is perusia, I'll tell you about that in a minute, will certainly have no advantage over those who fall asleep. See, the false teachers, the misleaders, had said, if you die before Jesus comes, I'm sorry, but you'll miss out. And Paul says the opposite. No, they get first priority. <laughs> they get to be first in greeting him. We who are alive will have no priority on those who've fallen asleep, who've been in the cemetery all these years. Let me talk about the Prusia for a minute. The Prusia is the king's arrival. From the time of the Greek Empire, that is about 300 years before Jesus came, they had this 
tradition of a king would go to visit a town in his domain. His coming, his arrival at that place was called his perusia, his arrival, his coming, his presence. And he would come to reward faithful citizens and to sort out the others, if you get what I mean. Yeah? Those who'd been rebels, those who hadn't paid the taxes, and whatever, he came to deal with them. As he approached the town, and there was, it was noisy, you know, and all the rest of it, the leading citizens and the faithful subjects would go out and greet him. And they would often give him a gift, and the gift they most often gave the visiting king was, guess what? Another crown. Which is why you get this thing about crowns, crowning with many crowns, the elders casting their crowns. Because they're given a crown and they give it back to Jesus in Revelation. So they gave him a crown. And then he, with all of these faithful people, come in and he takes over the town. They were part of his perusia. When the Romans did the same thing in their empire, they gave it a Latin name called Adventus. And guess what we call Christmas? Advent. Because it was the first arriving of Jesus. His first Advent. But in his second Advent, Santa Claus isn't coming to down. Jesus is coming to down. To reward his faithful and to hold accountable those who have not been. That's exactly the picture that Paul is using here. The king is going to come. And his faithful will be waiting and ready. And the others, it's going to be a very terrible day. Then Paul gives us this, this, this kind of over picture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Remember Jesus ascended to heaven? And the angels said to the disciples who were still looking up there at the clouds that had received him, they said, he'll come the same way you've seen him go. He'll descend from heaven with a shout. There's nothing secret about this, folks. There's nothing hidden about this. He'll descend with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trump of God, trumpet of God. I'm reading from the King James Roman, what's in front of me. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. John Stott, in his commentary on Thessalonians, puts it this way. Here we have the return of the Lord Jesus, his arrival. We have the resurrection of the dead saints. No mention here yet of the wicked that comes. The rapture, the transformation of the living. By the way, rapture, we use rapture as the word to mean bliss. Oh, what rapture that will be. But rapture, again from the Latin, means snatching up being snatched up. We're snatched up into the presence of the Lord. The the dead in Christ are raised, but we are transformed from being living beings to being supernatural physical beings by the power of Jesus without ever going through death. So the rapture of the living ones and the reunion of all the saints with the Lord Jesus. That's all wrapped up in there. The shout of God and the shout of the archangel and the, the, the trumpet being sounded are Old Testament images. When Israel was called to gather together, and particularly when they were called to go to war, guess what? Gather! We're going. That's what the trump of God is about. When Jesus descends from heaven, we're gathered into his invading army. 
He doesn't come and then go back again. He come, he's coming to us to judge the world. And having joined him in the air, we attend his coming. So on the last day, the coming of the Lord Jesus will happen suddenly, dramatically, and noisily. It will not be a localised event, but a global one. He's not just touching down somewhere. He comes everywhere at the same time. You think, how could that be? You're still addicted to time and space. Time and space is being torn apart on this day. So things can happen in a way you could not even now imagine. Jesus will be seen everywhere at the same time. In fact, he says this. In, in come on. <laughs> Tap it down for me, so thank you, Sharon. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Years ago, I stood on a rooftop in Tunisia visiting some friends there. A missionary kind of visit, you know, and because they were working in, in secret amongst Muslims in Tunisia. And it, it was pouring, it was a thunderstorm, it was pouring rain, and, and they thought I was a complete idiot, but I went up the stairs and stood on their flat roof and looked at the skies, this thing, because the lightning was going off. And as I, I could hear the lightning as I was going up the stairs, and when I got to the top, I looked around, where's the lightning went? And suddenly, bang! <laughs> the whole sky flashed. It wasn't like, you know, or over the whole sky, east to west, the whole sky went like a flashbulb at me, and the boom was like, Ooh! At that moment, I remember this scripture. As far as the east is from the west, like lightning, the Son of Man will come. No, there it is, here he is, there it is. No, he's everywhere. Every eye will see him. If you've died as a believer before then, your body was buried or cremated and your soul or spirit went to be with the Lord. You'll have been with him since then, in paradise, in his presence. But you are still awaiting resurrection day. You'll be among those who are first given new glorious bodies. The same sort of body that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. It was physical and yet supernatural. But if you're a living Christian on that day, you will hear and see this arrival of the Lord. And you'll see the resurrection beginning. And you too will be transformed. And you'll be given that same sort of glorious, supernatural, physical being. And maybe it's only a moment within what's been called the momentous event of the last day. But those who've died in faith in Jesus will have their moment. The dead in Christ will rise first. To be dead in sin is bad news. But to be dead in Christ is to be dead in body, but with him in spirit, awaiting this glorious day of resurrection and eternal life with him. This is how Paul writes about it to the Corinthians. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. And then he gets poetic, as Paul often does. We will not fall all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. By the way, did you get this last trumpet? There's no more trumpets after this either. This is the last of everything. This is the last of it, of the whole. It's the end. It's the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. 
For this corruptible, I'm going to read on a bit, this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that was written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's from Isaiah. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? That's Hosea. We are gathered together to meet the Lord as he is still in the air, still coming on the clouds. And by the way, these are not fluffy, white, nice clouds. These are clouds of judgment. These are clouds of wrath. Clouds are not good news usually in the Bible. They're they're, they're a symbol of God's judgment. And we arrive with him on the earth and the rest of the last day unfolds from there. The old song, When the Saints Go Marching In. You remember the one? Yeah. Or oh, when the saints, you know, like. You can sing it later. <laughs> that, old hymn, that old hymn it is, uh, and I've looked up some of the early versions. It's got some really good lyrics in it. Or oh, when the sun refuses to shine. and or It's got some good lyrics. But if the picture that is in your mind when you hear that is of us marching into heaven, you've missed it. The saints march with Christ into the earth. We're part of his invasion party. That's the picture that Paul is presenting here. We're coming with him in his judgment upon the earth. And then Thessalonians 4 finishes with with this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Anybody encouraged a bit so far? Okay, good. Now, there are no chapters and verse divisions in the original text. Okay, they're added later. Nice meaning people. So we're going to go straight on. Into chapter 5, where Paul says, (laughs) About the times and the seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you. Why? Because he's told them all about it? Well, he has and he hasn't. The times and the seasons is a phrase taken from Daniel 2.21. But Jesus used the same words when he answering the disciples immediately before he returned to the Father. Acts chapter 1. They came together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. That's the same phrase, just differently translated. Times and seasons. Times is chronology. Tick, 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 tick. The, the days, the hours, the minutes, the seconds. Seasons is events, crises. Events. And it's not for you to know the tick, 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 all the events. The times or the seasons. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses and so on. After he told them this, he was taken up as they were watching and cloud received him out of their sight. It is not given to us to know the times or the seasons of the Lord's return. So why do all these people always predict things? And they, all, they all get it wrong, don't they? Every prediction's been wrong so far. You'd think they'd get embarrassed and give up. It is not given to us to know the Lord's appointed times and periods beforehand. I want you to hear that very clearly. It is not given to us. God has revealed some things to us and there are other things which he keeps to himself and this is one of them. Only the Father knows that day, said Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, For you yourselves know very well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Unexpected. The burglar doesn't come round to your door and put a note through, on Thursday night I'm going to come and take your stuff. 
The whole point about being a burglar is you're not expected. And this day will come like a thief in the... Jesus isn't a thief. He's not sneaking around. But the day will surprise people the way a thief surprises you when he's been and gone. When they say peace and security, don't worry, be happy, <laughs> then sudden destruction comes on them, like labour pains upon a pregnant woman, as happened to this <laughs> two years ago. And they will not escape. Sudden, unexpected, kind of expected, but not really. Now, what? The Thessalonians had already been told these things. They had not been told the times and seasons. They'd been told that we can't know the times and seasons, and therefore we need to be prepared at all times and all seasons. Notice there the day of the Lord. We read about that last time I stood here from 2 Peter 3. Throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord means the day the Lord comes and rescues and rewards his people, particularly in their suffering and oppression and persecution, and he takes revenge on his enemies, and it's the same day every time. The day of his appearing. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is called the great and terrible day of the Lord in Joel. You can't miss it if you read the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now sometimes there are days of the Lord before the great day of the Lord. There are times when he does that in history. Here and here and here and here. But there is a final, last day of the Lord which will be his day of final accounting but also his day of ushering his children into their glorious inheritance. It's both the day of salvation and of judgment, of glory or of wrath. And that day will come like a thief comes in the night or like sudden labour pain comes upon a pregnant woman. And Jesus used both illustrations in the Gospels talking about his coming, his parousia. Paul is writing to Christians about the day when they are raised to eternal life. But that day will come unexpectedly and suddenly. And though unbelieving people are thinking, we're okay, we're fine, it's never been better, sudden destruction will come. That's what we've already seen when we looked a week or two ago at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The context is, don't worry about those who are bothering you and persecuting you. Their day, of their day of accountability will come. How will it come? How will they be held accountable? This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Jesus coming with his angels, trumpets, noise, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the other side of this day of the Lord. Glory for the saints, wrath for the unbelieving. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. It's destruction that doesn't destroy, that doesn't finish you off. You just keep being destroyed. From the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. The day when the persecutors and those who don't know God and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus the punished is the same day that he's glorified in his saints and they are rewarded for their endurance for his name's sake. In the same day of his appearing, this parousia, advent in Latin, the arrival of the king, his faithful people are rewarded and commended but his enemies face judgment. There's trouble coming upon the unbelieving world. 
And there's also trouble, trouble coming yet before Jesus returns on the church. Do a bit more about that next time. Don't want to discourage you today. This is an issue of day and night. Whether you're in the light or in the dark. Whether you're children of the day or children of the darkness. Meaning you belong to it. Children of his Hebrew way of saying you belong to it. You brothers, sisters too, are not in the dark for this day to overtake you like a thief. It doesn't mean you know when the day's coming, but you're prepared to it so you're not ashamed on that day. You're not overtaken by it. When it begins, you go, yes! The arrival of the king. Come on, machine. <laughs> Okay, just keep going. Could you tap? Oh, thank you. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. You belong to the light. You belong to Jesus, the light of the world. You belong to the light of God, the kingdom of light. Jesus, God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son. That's where we stand now. That's where we belong now. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then, we must not sleep in this life, we must be those who oh, are just, I can't be bothered. No, 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 I'm just a... like the rest. But we must stay awake and be serious. Remember, Jesus told the parables about staying awake? The virgins who stayed awake. In fact, they did fall asleep, but, it's not quite... <laughs> but they were ready. For those who sleep, sleep at night, unless you're doing night shifts. And those who get drunk are drunk at night, unless you're a serious alcoholic, in which case you don't stop all day. But night is when people do stuff that they shouldn't be doing, is what we're saying, like burglars again. But we are children of the day. We live our lives in the open. We live our lives in the light of God. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put on the armour of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. Then this verse, I love this verse coming up. Come on. For, <laughs> for God did not appoint us yes, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're alive when Jesus comes or we've been in our grave, we will live together with him. God did not appoint us to wrath. The reason that you're a Christian is not because you thought it was a great idea, I'll go and be a Christian. Because God chose you and called you and converted you. Yes. And you are now his. Amen. He gave you to his son before he even made the world. So that Jesus was already appointed to be your sacrifice and saviour before God had made anything. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to rejoice in your calling, in your choosing. And then live accordingly. We can't know the day in advance, but we can be prepared for that day so it doesn't surprise us, overtake us, or find us ashamed. And then again, therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're already doing. So let me ask this question. Did Paul get all of that as a revelation? No, just the bit about the dead in Christ will rise first. Where did he get the rest from? How about Jesus? 
It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the time when Jesus is answering questions about his, from his disciples, and it's in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Mark 13. See how Paul uses these words of the Lord Jesus from Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now, it's a bit late to be a sign, isn't it? Because this is it. It's happening. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Everywhere. Global. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Description of the last day. That description is in Paul's mind as he's writing these letters. He knows that's what Jesus said. And he's applying it. It's clear that Paul knew the teaching of Jesus and he's paraphrasing his words. And so when Jesus was asked by his disciples, because he'd said this temple is going to be destroyed and armies are going to surround Jerusalem and, and they're going to lay siege and going to overthrow this city, then the disciples go, what? what? Did you hear what he just said? What? So as soon as they got him somewhere quiet, you know, they're walking up Mount of Olives away from Jerusalem, they said, no, stop, 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 tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your, your coming? You, you know, you talk about your coming. When, when's, how's that going to be? And, 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 uh, and, and so they ask those questions. And, and of the end of the age, they use the, the expression, and of the end of the age. And Jesus, in answering them, answers those three questions. When will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? That's going to happen in the AD 60s, finishing in AD 70. And Jesus tells them about that. These things, in that generation. Then, he's coming. What's it going to be like when he comes? He tells them that as too. And what's going to happen at the end of the age? He tells them that too. And here's the thing, I believe with all my heart, Jesus' second coming is the end of the age. It is literally the end of the world. That's how he answers. And again, just to quote Jesus here, now concerning that day, not those days, that generation, but that day, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father. So if some guys on you know TV or the internet telling you, I can tell you when Jesus is coming, mm-mm. Where's the button to press the ejector seat and get rid of him? No one knows except the Father. Watch, therefore, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. That's why Paul says, I don't need to tell you about the times and seasons, because we don't know the times and the seasons. Not, not, I can tell you about them. I can't tell you about them because we don't know them. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his slaves, gave each one his work and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert. Oh, should have been the next bit. Therefore, be alert. Since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or in the crying, crowing of the rooster or early in the morning, otherwise he might come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Jesus gave warnings and signs about what was going to happen in the, in, in, within the generation after he spoke, AD 60s leading up to AD 70. Those days, that time of great tribulation, he said there'd never be a time of trouble like that again in the earth. It ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But of that day, the end of the age, 
There's no countdown, no timeline. Believers just need to live ready all the time for that day. So I can make no predictions often at times because the Lord Jesus doesn't. It's one day. It's called variously the day of the Lord, the last day, the end of the age, the end of the world. It's the coming, the parousia of Christ. There are one, there is one day of resurrection, but there are two kinds of resurrection. And one is much better than the other, which is why it says in Hebrews, some people pursued in faith and endured in faith because they were, they were seeking a better resurrection. Given the choice of these two, I'm sure you'll know which is the better one. Two groups. Here's how Jesus taught it. And I say again that the things that have most shaped my thinking is not the epistles, it's Jesus. Here's how Jesus taught it. John 5 verse 28. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming. Now he's talked about the time now is he's calling people to life and they're coming to life in his name. The gospel calls people to live life in Jesus, doesn't it? It gives them life in Jesus. But the time is coming when all who are in the graves, this is very literal, will hear his voice. All. Somebody say all. all. At the same time. All. all. Sorry, I mean all at the same time. <laughs> all who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come out. One call, one resurrection. But notice this. Those who have done the good things to the resurrection of life. Those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. One resurrection day, but two classes of resurrection. One better one, and the other one you don't even want to know about. It's a judgment resurrection. It's a resurrection to be given a body in which to be judged and condemned eternally. Jesus doesn't offer any gap between those two. Not even a thousand years. We'll come back to that next week. It's one resurrection day, two groups raised. Paul makes his defense of faith to Felix in Acts 24, and this is what he says. He's making his justification of his faith, and he says, I have a hope in God, which these men, the Jews, were accusing him themselves, also accept that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. If Paul believed in two separate resurrections, he'd have said so. He said one resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is reigning now until every enemy is under his feet. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. We read a bit of it earlier. He goes on further down in 1 Corinthians 15. He says the last enemy to be abolished is death. Every enemy will be put under his feet. That's the nature of his kingdom. It's not Jesus reigns and nothing's, nothing's be having to be dealt with. Nothing's having to be fought and overcome. He lives reigning despite his enemies overcoming his enemies. By the way, so do we. That's called reigning in life. It isn't that you, there's not stuff you have to, that you don't have anything to overcome. It's that you do overcome in his name through the trials and troubles of life. That's the nature of this life and it's the nature of Christ's reign. And at the end of his reign, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. 
when Jesus comes with his invasion army and raises all the dead, that is the end, folks, because the next day is the eternal kingdom. The abolition of death, the resurrection of the dead, is the last act of Messiah in his age and of his kingdom. After that, it's the kingdom of our God and Father. I thought this morning I'd be going over to 2 Thessalonians 2 as well, but uh, no, 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 far too long to do that. By the way, 2 Thessalonians 2, about the man of lawlessness, is one of the most difficult passages in all scripture. It's commonly assented to be one of the most difficult passages. And okay, Muggins has got to tackle it next week, so pray for me. <laughs> I'll also say something about, something about Revelation 20 and Millennium next week as well to try and straighten that out a bit. Here's the thing. We are to live like those who've been given a house to watch, a job to do, treasure to, to keep, because we don't know when the day of reckoning will come. We don't know when the last day is going to dawn. We are to live every day in readiness for the last day. And not just because it's the day of judgment, but because it's the day of our Lord. It's the day we see him. We look for it. We run towards it. We're eager for it. Like those citizens who say, the king is coming. Is he? Wow, let's go and welcome him. And so they come in with him. That's how it will be for believers on the last day. We come with him, having been given beautiful, transformed, glorious bodies. Some of you, some of us, me included, are getting older. Aren't you looking forward to a nice, fresh body? Living every day in the hope of his appearing. Not the dread of it, the hope of it. We love his appearing. We long for the day. But if we're building our lives now, 1 Corinthians uh, 3 says, if we're building our lives now with wood, hay and stubble, which are things of no value, or even with things the world values but have no lasting value, you know gold will melt on the last day? Silver, gold, precious stones. So either things of no value or things that the world thinks are valuable, but they really have no lasting value. We will enter that day a little ashamed. We will have no reward. We have just one or two practical things to talk about for a moment here. Pastoral application. First is this. It's important we believe the truth. How you think shapes the way you live. If you say to me, this is suppose, I'm not getting at anybody, but if someone said to me, oh, I believe this and this, and I'm thinking, is that the way you live? In fact, I might even ask the question, so how do, you, how do you live that out? And that person may not even thought about, well, that, what do you mean? I mean, I just have a normal life and then I believe this. No, you can't have a normal life and then believe that. You have to, if you believe that, you have to have an extraordinary life. Yes? You can't be like the world if you believe the world's going to end when Jesus comes. Because it's all going up in smoke. So what's the point in loving this world when it's all going to go? See, what you believe, what you think in your heart, and sometimes what goes on in your heart isn't what comes out of your mouth. You can assent to something, but in here there's something else going on. We need to believe the truth because the truth will shape the way that we are. You know, Jesus told these stories about the servants and the good servants and bad servants, and the bad servants uniformly thought the wrong way. The master's not coming back yet. It's okay. We've got time to straighten up and clean up before he comes. And he came when they least expected him. 
And there are people today, professing Christians, think, I've got time to straighten myself out. I've got time to clean up my act yet. How do you know that? Do you know something that Jesus doesn't? The hour of his appearing? What we believe will lead us to lead careful, disciplined, focused lives or careless, indisciplined, ineffectual lives. And then we're to live in the truth. And here I've got what was an animation, which is not going to work because that was on my Mac, but if you take the word believing, come on, machine. If you take the believing, there, it's not going to run. Never mind. Take, knock out the B, the E, the E. What have you got left? Living. Living, Living comes out of believing. Faith that seeks, pursues, obeys, endures. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians, be serious, be sober, be awake, don't, get, don't spend your nights getting drunk, stay fit, stay focused, set your affections on things that are eternal, that will really last. Be about your master's business, be ready for his return. And then, lastly, encourage one another. We read it twice, end of 1 Corinthians 4, down in 1 Corinthians 5 as well. Therefore, encourage one another. Can you tap that down for me, please, Sharon? Thank you. Encourage one another, and again. Encourage one another in what my names? Oh, it's the typeface is too small. Never mind. Encourage one another to continue in faith. Go on, go on, go on in faith. To live in confidence and obedience to Jesus. Not, not hesitant, boldly living your life for him. Boldly making the right decisions and ignoring the wrong ones. Confident to do so by the help of God's grace and his Holy Spirit. Encourage one another to continue in faith. Encourage one another with the truth. Speak God's word to one another. God's word changes things. I remember when some relatives of mine had a, a child that died a cot death, you know. He was an infant. And I just felt I needed to phone them and I needed to phone them. And, and, and the day wore on, I'd heard about it. And finally I rang and I spoke to my, it was my cousin's husband. It was my cousin who's, and her husband answered the phone. His name is David too. And I said, David, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get away from I felt I needed to ring you. And, and, you know, sometimes you can say all the usual words, you know, I'm really sorry for your loss. You know, if you go to a register of death, the first thing they say, I'm really sorry for your loss. They're professional, they know how to say it. And I said, I, I said, just couldn't do that. I said to him, I said, David, we're both called David, you know, him, my cousin's wife. And so I said, do you remember the other David, King David? He said, yeah, of course I do. He's a believer, lovely man. And his child who died? Yes. Do you remember what he said? He shall not come to me, but I will go to him. And I said, I believe that's God's word to you, David and his wife. Your child is gone, and he, he will not come to you, but you will go to him. He is with the Lord. We were both in tears on the phone. And he said to me, thank you so much. No, it's been a day and a long day and it's near the end of it no one has spoken God's word to us until you did just now and many believers have spoken to them we need to speak God's word to one another to speak the truth of God's word to one another that's where life comes from that's where hope comes from 
when we realign our thinking to God's truth and say, this has not happened out of the blue. God knows. God understands. Encourage one another to hope. And I've said that after the truth, because you need the truth to build hope in you. Our lives and our now and our future yet to come is in his hands. And as we read it earlier, we are not predestined to wrath, but to glory. Amen. So we live in hope of the resurrection of the dead and to see our Lord Jesus. Encourage one to live for what matters, what lasts, not, one, not what can be lost quickly. Even when a thief breaks in and steals or rust causes your, your beautiful fancy machine to fall apart and the wheels to drop off. All it takes is someone to, some idiot to hit you and your beautiful car is now... <laughs> Build for what lasts, what matters. Yeah. Encourage one to live for eternal values. And encourage one another to love and to give and to serve. Faithful servants are the ones who are ready for his return, not the ones who are watching the skies and looking for signs. The ones who are faithfully doing what he's given them to do. To encourage one another, we need to connect with one another, yes? You have to have some connection, some conversation. We meet together to discuss life and faith and truth together, to pray together. It's now a long time since we went through Hebrews together. Let me remind you from back end of Hebrews, this injunction of Scripture. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope. Notice that hope? Our trust in the future. Faith in God's future is in God's hands. Confession of hope without wavering for he who is faithful who promised. He who promised is faithful. Let's be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Encourage one another to love and to good deeds. Not staying away from our worship meetings. The Holman Christian Standard Bible doesn't pull any punches there, does it? Not staying away from our gatherings, as some habitually do, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see that they're approaching. Amen. As you think, I think Jesus, it's getting closer. We're getting closer to the last day. All the more then, encourage one another. Be storing one another up. Here's one final scripture. I'm going to break bread. Philippians 3. I just like this so much I wanted to read it to you. Paul says, I have often told you and now say again with tears. Imagine dear old Paul sobbing his heart out as he's dictating this letter. That many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject, subject everything to himself. We still live in weakness with corruption, but one day 
to go back to 1 Corinthians 15 again, this corruption will put on incorruptibility. This mortal being will be transformed into an immortal being. And that is not because of anything that we have done, but because Jesus is altogether our Saviour from beginning to end. Destined for his salvation, which includes the resurrection of our bodies. My friend, you will not be a disembodied spirit floating around Jupiter in ages to come. You will be a living, breathing being, because Jesus is one too, and you will see him with your own eyes. He who has this hope within himself purifies himself and is busy about his master's business, ready for the day. Let's pray together. We want to be amongst those who love his appearing, who are longing for the day. He would run towards it if we could, rather than hide from it. Lord Jesus, we want to be those who love you so dearly in this life that it will be like being introduced to somebody you already know when we see you. We want to be like Paul who pursued with all his heart. When he was in a prison cell, couldn't do much, but he pursued knowing you. Knowing you. So help us, Lord, to truly believe from our hearts, with our hearts, these things. So they steer us guard our course. They're like tram lines that we live on and run on. I'm not fussed and focused on this world. I don't need what the world needs. I don't value what the world values because I'm living for a greater hope. I'm living for an incredible destiny. The glory of God which will not only shine upon me but actually shine out from me because I will be transformed to have his likeness. Oh Jesus. Captivate our hearts, we pray, so that you are more important than stuff. You're more important than the news. You're more important than possessions. Captivate our hearts, Holy Spirit, with the knowledge of Jesus. So we even embrace the hard times as being part of the process of preparing us for that glorious day. We want to live in the light of your return, Lord. Ready. Running. Eager. It'll be a terrible day for those who do not believe. But it'll be a day of glory and reward for those who trust you and love you. So we bless you, Lord Jesus, that you've called us out of darkness into light. You've given us this new life to live. And you give us everything we need in this life to help us, to equip us, to get us through, to live life confidently and obediently for your name's sake. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I just say, if you're not yet a believer, I'd love you to pick up one of these. There's some on that table there. There's some in the back, uh, in the foyer as well. It's called Just Grace. It's one of the best booklets about the gospel I've ever come across, which is why we stock it and uh, use it. Take one home, read it through. There's a prayer at the end of committing yourself to the Lord Jesus. If you get that far and you pray that prayer, come back and tell us about it. We'd love to rejoice with you that you have found a new hope and a new life and a new faith in Jesus. Amen. We're going to break.